yes, we're underway. One thing that's been on my heart a lot over the last few months is this whole thing about faith. And I really feel motivated to spend as long as we need over the next few weeks, months, I don't know how long this will take, but to get pretty forensic about faith. Because we talk about faith all the time. And uh, me being a pastor, I'll always be telling you, well, you've got to have faith, you've got to have faith. We talk about the faith of Abraham. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the, the chapter on faith. And we read it and we quote from it pretty frequently. And I know in my own life, faith is a central plank. And I don't even know whether I'd be here today if it weren't for faith. But I really think that sometimes we can use the word without actually appreciating what it really means. And sometimes faith gets watered down until it becomes nothing more than wishful thinking. And wishful thinking actually doesn't get us anywhere because wishful thinking doesn't really motivate us. But faith does motivate us. So what I want to do today is to lay a foundation by skipping through the major covenants that are recorded in the Bible. Because before we can even start talking about faith, I think we need to understand the covenantal nature of our God. And I probably will actually in the future go through every one of these covenants in fine detail so we can just tease out something more about the heart of God that, of course, motivates his covenants with humanity. So the first covenant that I want to talk about is what is known by theologians often as the creation covenant. Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Adamic covenant, sometimes the Edenic covenant. All three terms refer to pretty much the same thing. And um, some theologians argue that it wasn't really a covenant, I don't really think it matters all that much. There's one reference, I think, in the book of Amos, Amos to the covenant that God had with, with Adam. But more important than an argument about whether or not this was actually a covenant, there was no um, blood uh, letting or anything like that, but I think more important than whether or not it's a covenant is what it reveals about the heart of God. And uh, you know that I've quoted Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, pretty frequently, um, probably once every three weeks. Helen keeps a note of it, I think. She's got the record there. But the, the, the essence of the relationship between God and humanity expressed in those two verses of Genesis chapter 1 is about fruitfulness and having dominion over everything that God created. Now, it's quite interesting because I've studied the Hebrew and actually God is really saying only two things. When he says be fruitful, when he says multiply, when he says fill the earth, he's really saying the same thing in three different ways. And that's pretty common in uh, Hebraic writing. To, to, when something's important, it's often said multiple times. I guess because God understands that sometimes we're a bit thick and we need to be told things more than once. Well, at least that's probably God's experience with me. 
So this idea of being fruitful and, and multiplying and filling the earth, it's actually about having babies. Yes, it really is. You, know, God, you see, God's desire right at the outset was to see an earth that was filled with people like him. At this time in human history, of course, sin had not entered in. And so Adam and Eve, as they were created, were like God. They were indeed created in the image of God. They had the character of God. And God's desire was to see the earth filled with people like him. And it always has been his desire to see the earth filled with people like him. So that's one aspect of the blessing that God pronounced on Adam and Eve. The second aspect was to subdue the earth, to have dominion. And actually a, a loose translation or paraphrase of that would be that God said, be my deputies. Be my deputies. The earth is subject to you. Now, of course, that doesn't give us permission to do great harm to the environment because we're not, in a sense, in competition with the environment. But by the same token, it doesn't mean we should also be preservationists because God created all things for the benefit of humanity. But notice here that God did not give us ownership of anything that he created. The invitation here, the blessing here, was to be his deputies in the earth. In other words, to carry the character of God into our relationship with everything that he had created and placed in the earth. So here we see something of God's heart towards humanity revealed. A twofold blessing. One in terms of actually filling the earth with people like God, and obviously they'd be like us as well. And then the blessing to subdue the earth or to have dominion over everything that God had created as his deputies. Some theologians talk about the idea of a, a royal delegation. You can't get any more royal than God, right? He's the sovereign over everything. But in fact, he's delegated a degree of sovereignty to us and said, I am delegating to you sovereignty as my representatives on the earth. And that's the sense in which we are to subdue or to have dominion. Well, as you know, it didn't take too long for things to go off the rails. And of course, we read in Genesis 4 about what we call, uh, Genesis 3 rather, about what we call original sin, when Adam and Eve were unable to resist the temptation to eat fruit from the tree that God had said, you must not eat of that tree. And then by the time of Noah, the whole um, earth had degenerated. The, the morality of people on the earth had degenerated so much so that in fact Noah and his family were the only righteous people left on the earth. 
And as you know, in a sense, God decided to start again. And he decided to um, overturn the natural order to bring about this worldwide catastrophic flood in which everything except that which was on the ark was actually destroyed. It's interesting that if you have a look at the um, history of the patriarchs in the Bible, up until the time of the flood, they lived around 900 years. After the flood, they were living for more like 100 years. Or day, there's uh, another board out. It's outside. You might want to just check to see if the um, power's been... been the, there's a switch tripped. We're back in business. I don't know, how, don't know what lay behind that, but it was getting a bit warm in here, wasn't it? Um, yeah, we've got a power board here, and then we've got another one out there. Oh, it's all crazy. But anyway. Um, so it, it's quite interesting to note that up until the flood, people lived around the 900 years, and then after the flood it was just over 100. And, of course, these days we're creeping back up to, say, the 100, perhaps 120 mark. Um, some people argue that that's because of the effect of the flood on the overall environment of the earth, but who knows. Anyway, the next covenant we see, and it's actually the first covenant which is described as such by God himself, is the covenant with Noah. And to this day, there's a, a group of people who call themselves Noahites and they live under the Noahic covenant. You can read about the Noahic, blah, 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 the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 8, uh, verse 23 to Genesis 9, verse 17. I won't read it all out. But it repeats the creation covenant. The main change is that we can now eat meat. So God repeated that covenant to multiply, to fill the earth, and also to have dominion. In fact, God says as part of that covenant that all the creatures shall have fear of man. And God also said, not only can you eat of the fruit of the trees and all the fruit and the grain and seeds and so on, but you can now eat meat, but you must drain it of blood. But there are some additional uh, laws that were instituted as part of that covenant and they had to do with the value of human life. So it was really with the Noahic covenant that laws against murder were instituted by God. And the third element of this covenant was that God promised never to suspend the natural order again. In fact, he says, Never again will I curse the land because of man. I think that's quite an interesting statement. So this covenant reaffirms God's original position in terms of multiplication and in terms of dominion over everything that he had created. It adds laws that uphold the value of human life and he promises that never again will the natural order be disturbed. And of course the Bible records that the rainbow will forever be God's sign 
that he will not overturn the natural order again. We, of course, see the rainbow being used for other purposes these days, but I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a few moments. Now, the covenant that we're most familiar with, no doubt, is God's covenant with Abraham. And uh, you can read of that covenant in Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 to 3, in Genesis 15, 1 to 21, and in Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5. I'm not, again, I'm not going to read out all those verses because there's quite a lot there. But I would encourage and challenge you to read and meditate on these covenants in the coming week. There were two parts of the Abrahamic covenant, and these are pretty important. Because many of us think that the Abrahamic covenant applied only to the Jews, but it didn't. It actually came in two parts. The first part was what you might call a national covenant, and that was where God promised that he would make the name of Abraham great, and that out of Abraham he would produce a great nation that nation being Israel. The second part of that covenant, if you like, is global because God says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Hebrew word for families there can take on many different meanings from the small nuclear family to whole nations. So here we see that God intended not only to bless Israel, but to bless the whole of humanity through that Abrahamic covenant. And of course, that was a covenant. That covenant was a covenant that was cut appropriately, um, given the traditions of Eastern culture at that time. And this is the covenant that the Jews treasure most highly and it's the covenant that is also the subject of much discussion in the New Testament and I want to come back to it soon. God also made a covenant with Moses and uh, you'll actually find that the, the books of the law contain the covenant that God made with Moses and through Moses with, with Israel. Uh, the books of Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy and Exodus contain most of the Mosaic covenant. There's a lot in it because, among other things, there were some 613 different laws that were instituted through the Mosaic covenant. Now, this covenant, I would argue, was the outworking of the national component of the Abrahamic covenant. It was all about Israel. God chose Israel. God wanted to separate Israel out from the rest of the world, primarily because the cultures that existed at that time generally uh, engaged in religious practices that were directly, directly um, opposite those that God wanted to institute. 
and many of those cultures engaged in child sacrifice, as we shall soon see. So three, I guess, three central issues in God's covenant with Moses. The first was Israel was to be separate. Now, a lot of the law was about keeping Israel separate from the other cultures of the time. Second, circumcision was central to the covenant of blokes, just blokes. And uh, it still is, of course, in Jewish culture. And it became a point of considerable debate in the early Christian church because there were those who felt that to be a Christian you had to be circumcised because they, they were carrying that important element of Mosaic law from their Judaism into their new Christian practice. But the apostles, of course, said, no, it is not necessary. And the reason it wasn't necessary was that the new covenant actually applies to all nations. It's an outworking of the global aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, and I'll come to that also um, momentarily. So God also has a covenant with King David. And this is where we see the first evidence of the outworking of the global aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel 6, 12-13 and 1 Chronicles 17, 11-14. Now importantly, at the time of David, the nation of Israel was already established. Now we know that there were times when they went into exile, etc., etc., because they disobeyed the laws of God. But at, at David's time, Israel was a great nation, and that continued through with his son, King Solomon. So the nation was now well established, but in the Davidic covenant, the eternal and global reign of Jesus was promised. There's very direct reference to the global reign of Jesus Christ in the Davidic covenant. And of course, part of that covenant was that Jesus Christ would come from the line of David and his heritage can be, trans, uh, can be um, traced all the way back to uh, King David, of course. Now this brings us to the New Covenant, the New Covenant which is the subject of the New Testament. Jesus is the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb of the New Covenant. And we are all declared to be descendants of Abraham and therefore heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham. Indeed, ours is described as a better covenant. We're translated from glory to glory, the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the new covenant. Not from the glory of a bad covenant to a better covenant or bad to good. There was nothing wrong with the Mosaic covenant, but it was intended to be outworked nationally. That is through the nation of Israel. Do you want to try your trick again, David? I think we've... Um, I don't know why we'd be tripping the meter because not doing anything we don't usually do. But uh, there you go. Maybe it's just super hot. Um, 
But this idea in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're going from glory to glory, we're going from the glory of the old covenant to the glory of the new covenant. Now that's, believe it or not, by way of background. Right? These covenants express something of the heart of God and importantly, land plays a central role in covenant. Now I want to hark back to the Abrahamic covenant here because this is the covenant which is referred to most in the New Testament. Right? We are defined to be heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, land was a very important element of the Abrahamic covenant. A couple of things about the land. The first is, God has never ceded ownership of the land to anybody. It says in Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So if you go right back to Adam, right, we were to be God's deputies on earth. We were to carry delegated royal authority on the earth, but we don't actually own anything. So God can do whatever he likes with the land. It's his to deal with as he wishes. The second point is that those who inhabited the land that God was giving them, the Canaanites, there were some others in there as well, there were some Amorites and um, Amalekites and so on, but they actually forfeited their right to the land because of the abominable practices that they engaged in. Um, the basic thing about them was they were into magic. And, and the Bible is very, very strong about the sinfulness of engaging in any kind of magic. And their magic included child sacrifice. Uh, the expression passing through the fire was the expression that was applied to sacrificing children in the fire in order to get an oracle, some foretelling of the future. They also engaged in religious orgies. And it's kind of interesting that there are parallels between the uh, beliefs and behaviours of the Canaanites and what we see in the modern Western world today where children are sacrificed at the altar of economics and the deification of self, the interest of individuals. And we're seeing sexual behaviours that are totally counter to what God has instituted. And we might feel sometimes that we're walking in the opposite direction of the rest of the world and probably we should feel like that because most of the world is walking in the same direction as the devil. But we're supposedly walking in the same direction 
as the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that we can expect of a covenantal God is that we will actually inherit the land. We will actually inherit the land. The promised land was actually a land of abundance and a land of prosperity. And Israel was a nation in which there was divine health. We who are heirs of the covenant are entitled as heirs to that abundance, that prosperity, to that good health. I've said before that we're not the sick trying to get well. We're already healed and Satan is simply trying to rob us of our divine health. So when, when we are showing symptoms of sickness, we should stand on our inheritance of divine health and call out the devil for what he is, nothing but a fallen angel and a robber. When we're falling on hard times financially, we need to stand on our inheritance as heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise. Satan is trying to rob us of the abundance that we are entitled to. Jesus himself, it is recorded in the word of God, was made poor that we might be made rich. And no matter how you want to translate it, poor means poor and rich means rich. So the heart of God revealed in these covenants is a pointer to what is rightfully ours as New Testament or New Covenant Christians. But I want to touch now on what we can learn about faith from Abraham. And this is really just setting the scene for what we might teach on over the next few weeks and months. Recall that part of the blessing that Abraham was to receive was to have a child, a son. Now that really didn't seem possible because as the, the Bible records, Abraham and Sarah, or Abram and Sarai, as they were at the time of the covenant, they were getting on in years. They were past the childbearing years. They got the promise, and the, the Bible records that Abraham believed God, and that was accorded to him as righteousness. So at the time that the promise was made, Abraham believed God. He had faith. But guess what? Sarai came along and said, there's nothing happening. And that was when she made the suggestion that Abraham should have a sexual relationship with a slave girl in the hope that that would produce a child, which of course it did. 
Ishmael was the product of the relationship that Abram had with Hagar, the slave girl. And then strife ensued. The slave girl was disrespectful of Sarai, who was her boss. Their relationship soured, and ultimately, of course, she was put out of that family community. And the children, Ishmael and Isaac, they had problems. And as we know, all the way down through the ages, Islam and Christianity have clashed. And that, of course, goes back to the um, Arabs because the Arabs are descended from Ishmael. Now, I would argue this. Ishmael was the product of the faith that Abraham, Abram and Sarai had in the promise. Their focus was we were promised a child. Because they were so focused on that, Sarai said to Abram, go sleep with my slave girl. Now look, that wasn't out of the ordinary in that culture. Having a son was very important to carry on the family line and if a wife was unable to have a child, the usual thing was for the man to sleep with one of the slave girls and produce an heir that way. So they weren't doing anything that was really out of line with the culture at that time. But because their confidence, their faith was in the promise, they lost sight of the God of the promise and actually went ahead and in their own strength tried to make the promise come to pass. Now Isaac was a different matter altogether. Isaac came along some 13 years after Ishmael, but by this time, Abraham and Sarah had put their faith in God. They put their faith in God, who was the maker of the promise. They put their faith in God, who was the maker of the promise. Now I'm going to tease this out in much more detail in coming weeks and months. But I think a really important thing for us to focus on is that faith is built on relationship. Faith is built on relationship. Now one of, one of the things we, we tend to do in Pentecostal churches is we talk a lot about faith, we talk a lot about reciting the word of God, making sure you meditate on that word, you're writing out scriptures, putting them up on your fridge. But you see, the danger there is that it will produce an Ishmael in your life because you end up putting your faith in the promise, not the promise maker. Now, I'm not critical of anybody who puts scriptures up on their fridge. I do the same thing. I do the same thing. 
and uh, we prayed over scriptures for Evangeline for years. And in fact, for the last three or four years, Jeanette and I, we were rejoicing in her birth. So we, we went way past saying, God, we believe this is going to happen. We, we said, thank you, Lord, for it already has happened in the heavenlies. And we're looking forward to it being manifest in this physical realm in the world. So yes, we, we, and we quoted to God from his word and we kept reminding God that his word is built around the idea of family. But you see, our faith is actually based on our relationship with God. It is God in whom we trust. Let me give you a, I guess, an introductory definition of faith. It is firm persuasion, right? Where facts will not cause you to change your mind. It is firm persuasion based on relationship with God. And for us New Testament or New Covenant Christians, that happens through Jesus Christ. We become followers of Jesus Christ. We build relationship with God. We grow to trust the God whose word we access regularly. That firm persuasion based on relationship with God, produces in us full acknowledgement of his revelation or truth. So you see, when we quote scripture, when we write out a scripture and stick it on our fridge, or put it in the front cover of our Bible, or put it on our desk, it's not the scripture in which we have faith. It is the God of the scripture in whom we have faith because we have relationship with him. And so we might recite a scripture about healing or financial prosperity or in, 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 in our case, Jeanette and me, we've got many, many family members who have never made a commitment to the Lord through Jesus. And uh, we don't want them to go to hell. So we, we pray scriptures over them. We pray for them. But our confidence is in God. And it's because of our confidence in Him that we acknowledge the truth in His Word. Do you see the difference? We don't go from the promise in the Word to faith. We go from faith in God through a personal relationship with him to having acknowledged the promises of his word. And the whole purpose about these covenants is that the covenants are covenants cut in the context of relationship with God. Abraham had relationship with God. Moses had relationship with God. David had relationship with God. We have relationship with God as new covenant people through 
Jesus. It's all about relationship. If we merely put our faith in the promises or the truth of his word, we're liable to produce Ishmael's in our own lives. But if we place our confidence in God through relationship and then acknowledge his promises and his truth, we will produce Isaac's in our life.